It's good to have you here. I hope uh, you are enjoying the, it seems like the last gas was summer out there, like literally uh, the last gas. Hopefully the smoke will clear up soon and, and fall will come. And yeah, I've been thinking a lot. This is kind of the time of year where I always think about school, right? You go through those, those periods of life where September is when school starts. And if you were a student, then, you know, you either liked that or you didn't like it. And then some of you have just kind of entered into that phase now where you're just not in school anymore. So it feels kind of weird. Uh, you'll get used to it. Uh, and then for some of us, when uh, the school, new school year starts, it, it's always a little nostalgic and you think back. And I've, I've shared this with you before, but when, when I think about my, especially my early academic um, life, it, it really has kind of an underwhelming kind of feeling about it. Like, I won't go into a lot of detail. I've shared this before, but in, in the first grade, which I remember actually really well, um, Mrs. Brown was my teacher, and I had this, it was a, a really big uh, classroom, and in the back of the classroom was a, a coat closet. I don't know if you had a room like that when you were young. And the coat closet was a really big room where we put our coats and our lunches and stuff. And it didn't have a door on it. And it was a really handy place to put unruly students who just wouldn't pay attention. You could put them in the, clo- in the coat closet and, um, and you could have, or I should say, and I could have a really nice view from the coat closet right up. I could see Mrs. Brown, but I couldn't bother the other students and cause trouble, which apparently I did. And so like most of my memories of first grade are just the view from the coat closet. And I don't know about second grade. I like I like blanked it out. I'm not sure. Third grade, I remember really well. Mrs. Funk was my teacher. And I don't know what I did to Mrs. Funk. I honestly don't remember what I did to her. But I know that at the parent-teacher conference, she told my parents, by the way, third grade, third grade, and we, my parents will still, they love to talk about it. Mrs. Funk said, she told my parents that I would end up in prison before I graduated from high school. Like that. And so again, I don't know what I did to her, but I wasn't her favorite student. Uh, fourth grade, I had Mrs. May, kind of more of the same. And I think sometimes, um, you know, students get reputations as they go along, and sometimes those reputations stick with you. Mrs. May had clearly heard about my reputation, so her goal is to shut me down in the fourth grade just to keep me from ruining the class. And so again, like my memories of fourth grade were mostly being controlled. And I had been told basically or convinced by my teachers that um, I was not a student, that I was not intelligent, that I would never be academic. And I remember thinking to myself, well, teachers ought to know, right? Like that's their thing. We're we're their specialty. If teachers think I'm dumb, then I must really be dumb. If they don't think I can ever be uh, a student, then I'll probably never really be a student. And so I just kind of, I really pushed my um, thoughts and my interests into other areas, not into academics. So like tennis was my thing and and I learned how to play guitar and music and and, and I was into friends and that was my thing. And I had really uh, in the fifth, sixth grade, some good teachers, but I had really become convinced at that point I wasn't academic, I was never going to really be a serious student. And that kind of followed me through middle school and into high school. Um, Again, it was all about music and tennis and friends. Uh, First year of of college, same thing. And, um, and then in the, the second year of college, at the beginning of the year, I had a, a theology class and we had a test one day in the class. We took the test, got our papers back. I don't remember what my grade was, honestly. It was probably just really average. And um, I was walking back to the dorm and in front of the dorm were a bunch of guys who were in the class with me and they were all talking about um, their, their grades. 
And John was in the group. John Hendricks was, was there. Now, I was pretty sure John was the smartest person uh, at our school. Um, incredibly smart and uh, sarcasm to go with it. And I was walking by and John says, the whole group was walking by, he says, hey Barnes, it was called me Barnes, hey Barnes, what'd you get on the test? I don't remember what I got on the test. I remember not wanting to talk about it, uh, which is probably a clue. And so I just kind of walked by John. And as I walked by ignoring him, he says to me, hey Barnes, I know, I, I know all about you and I know about people like you. You're, you're the super nerdy, intelligent egghead to get straight A's without even trying. And you ruin the bell curve for everyone. And we all hate people like you. Thanks a lot. And I just remember like walking by, going into my dorm room, going to do some stuff. And it struck me. Like it struck me, I thought, you know what? The smartest guy on campus thinks I'm the smartest guy on campus. <laughs> okay, now I knew he wasn't right, but it made me think. It really did get my attention. And I remember thinking, what if he's right? What if I really am smart? You know, what if I really could? And, and my attitude began to change. Uh, it began to change about what I thought I could accomplish. My grades began to change. My study habits began to change, and, and my expectations began to change. I began to believe, like, actually, God could use me for all sorts of stuff that I had ruled out. You know, I mean, when I started Bible college, please don't take this the wrong way, especially if your name's Scott, but when I started Bible college, I, I planned on being, a, I was a music major because I wasn't smart, and I thought, you know, well, I could be a music major. Right? I could lead worship in a church, that kind of thing. Ah, uh, but uh, anyway, so God took me down a whole different road as my attitude changed. Here's the thing. Uh, John wasn't trying to change my life that day. That was the farthest thing probably from his thoughts. Uh, but words have power like that. Even when we don't mean them to, they have power like that. Your words have power like that. Even when you're thoughtless with your words. Even when you're not trying to impact someone with your words, your words impact the people around you, right? Your spouse, your kids. What are your words doing to your kids? What are your words doing to your parents, to your mom, to your dad, right? Sometimes as kids, we don't realize the power of our words, even with our parents. What about the words that you use with your siblings, or friends, or how about just casual acquaintances, or even complete strangers? <laughs> Isn't it weird sometimes how a complete stranger can say something to us and it impacts us? And the same thing is true when we, spot, when we speak to others, but especially today I wanna to talk about unbelievers. What about unbelievers? How about people who don't know Christ? How are your words impacting people who don't know Christ? So we've been making our way through the book of Colossians for a while now, and Paul has kind of been on a theme um, for a while. In fact, I think a month ago when I preached, uh, we talked about relational clothing. Remember Paul talked about how we should dress uh, in terms of uh, relationally towards one another. And then he talked about uh, the love that we should have for one another. And then he talked about the unity that we should have for one another and speaking spiritually. And then he talked about, you know, the relationships in, in marriages, the relationships in families, the relationships in, in workplaces. And this has been his theme. And as we come to chapter four, I believe sometimes commentators come to chapter four and they draw a hard line and they say, we're starting something new. I don't think we are. I think Paul is just continuing on and the same discussion that he was having, but now we're gonna talk in chapter four, at least in the, the verses today, about unbelievers. He's continuing this theme 
of relationships. And the big idea this weekend that I want to talk about is this. It's the idea that words have power. Words are powerful. And before you talk to people, make sure you talk to God. Before you open your mouth and speak powerful words to other people, first talk to God. Our passage this morning, and I have this in your notes, or you might open your Bibles, from Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Let me read this for you. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray for us this morning as we come to your word. And pray that you will do for us what I cannot do, that you will open our hearts and minds to understand your word. That we will hear from you through your word, through the power of the Spirit. And that as we think about the power of our words, Father, you will shape us and and purpose us as we go from here today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Yeah, so let's start this morning with this. In the passage we look at, we're going to start with God, right? Which is kind of our big point. Before you open your mouth, before you speak to other people, because people are important, we should talk to God. In chapter 4, verse 2, it's where we read this today. Um, in the ESV, it says, continue steadfastly in. And in the NIV, it, it has devote yourselves to. I'm going to talk about both of those because they're both actually really good translations for what we're talking about. Continue steadfastly and be devoted or devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the, the word steadfast there has the idea of, of, of being deliberate, of setting up a practice. A devotion has the same idea. It's the idea of making a commitment to something. And here, it's being committed to prayer. Now, a lot of times when we think about prayer, we think of an event. In other words, we think, I'm gonna pray in the morning, or I'm gonna pray in the afternoon. I'm gonna get together with some people and pray. We're gonna pray before dinner. But we tend to think of prayer as this place and time where we stop what we're doing and we talk to God, which is an important thing. But I think when we think about prayer, Uh, Life in general can distract us from prayer. There's just so much stuff going on in your life. There's people and discussions and, right, there's music to listen to and news and podcasts and, uh, you know, we we gotta drive and process information and sometimes it's just hard to figure out when we can have time to really focus on prayer. It made me think this week about Jesus who we're told had the practice of rising early in the morning, I suspect, before everyone else was up and could bother him and he would go to a quiet place and he would pray. He needed to make some time to have undistracted prayer to be able to talk to God. For you, you know, maybe that's early mornings. Maybe it's late at night when everyone's in bed. Maybe it's at lunch or when you're exercising or when you're on your commute. But what matters most is that you find some time that you devote yourself to having time for prayer. And and it's helpful to remember that there are no rules really when it comes to prayer. 
Uh, you don't have to be sitting down. You don't have to be standing up. I, I remember, especially uh, in the early years I was at Gateway, I always had this idea that prayer had to be, like, I would get invitations from other guys, from other pastors, come over, and a bunch of us get together, and we'll pray for six hours, you know? And I would just, just the idea of sitting in a chair anywhere, quite frankly, for six hours, uh, just killed me. Like, I, I, I can't do that. And then one day, somebody said, you know, you don't have to be seated the whole time. You don't have to be on your knees the whole time. You can get up and walk around. You can pray when you're on a run. You can pray when you're on a commute. Well, mostly. I pray a lot when I'm commuting. But, you know, you can pray uh, in those times. And you can pray when you're gardening. I love to pray when I'm gardening. It's a really nice time to do that. Right? There are no rules. We just need to pray. We need to find time where we can be not distracted and we can talk to God. But that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about more than specific times that we set aside for prayer. Here Paul's talking about a continued steadfastly, a kind of a constant, never-ending communication with God. That's where I want to start here, is to talk about this idea of a non-stop connection, because this is what Paul has in mind. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he puts it really succinctly, pray without ceasing, which is just what it sounds like, never stop praying. Now, a good question is, how, how can we do that? How can we continue steadfastly in prayer? How can we pray without ceasing? How do we do, how do, we do that and still be present in, with the people we're having a conversation with? How can we be talking to them and praying? How can we be listening to a sermon and, and, and praying? How can we be doing our schoolwork or being in a, in, in a conversation and still be praying? That's a good question. One writer put it this way, prayer is not so much the speaking of words as the posture of the heart. And I think that's kind of getting to where Paul's heading here. Thomas Kelly wrote this. He said, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at a time. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs, but deep within, behind the scenes, at the same time, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer, in adoration, and worship, with a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings, to the talking of God, to our hearts and leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. But it's a thing that just kind of comes as we, as we do it. It's, it's hard to explain how you get to that place and it becomes, as he said, kind of like, like breathing. For me, I think it happened between my freshman and sophomore year in college. Up to that point, prayer was something that was always work. Prayer was always something on the calendar. I'm gonna do it at two o'clock today or whatever it is. Uh, after my uh, freshman year in college, uh, and I was uh, paying my way through college, I was back in the day where you could, long time ago, you could uh, go to college and have a job and pay your way through. And that was my goal, was to get through college and to pay my own way through college and to end without any debt. But after my first year of college, I realized uh, I was not able to work fast enough or make enough money. And so between my freshman and my sophomore year, I had to take the entire year off and I worked, basically made enough money to pay for uh, my sophomore and junior year when I walked in with cash, but it, it took a lot of work. For an entire year, I worked two jobs. I worked seven days a week. My first job, I was working for a guy who was building uh, custom homes up where we lived in the hills of LA, and he would build these homes, and there was so much money that it would take a long time to sell these homes, and my job from six to noon, Monday through Friday, was to go and to make sure everything on the outside of the house was perfect. And there's about six of them, weeding, mowing, trimming, all that kind of stuff. He didn't want music going on, didn't want me playing my boombox 
or anything because people might come by and look at the house. And so I was just out there and it was really quiet and I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I would start to pray. And I, I kept a prayer list and I would carry it with me and I would just pray while I was working there. And then I'd have an hour for lunch and then I would go to my second job, which was a seven day a week job. And I worked at a, a mobile gas station in LA. And that was way back in the day, you know, when you'd pull into the gas station and a guy would run up and, and he would be like, hey, can I check your oil for you and, and, uh, and pump your gas? And like, that was my job. I was managing the station, but it was a small station. And so I would do that. And there was a lot of time in between. And then I worked until 10 in the evening and there was just a lot of downtime. And so I just would begin to pray. And, and something happened, something kind of just clicked for me. And prayer went from being this thing I made appointments with God to do to where I, I, I had a practice of getting up in the morning and, and praying for my day as I was getting ready. And then I would not say amen at the end of the prayer, like purposely. Because it was my way of saying, all right, God, now I'm just gonna go into the rest of the day and you're gonna be part of everything. And maybe I would be you know, pumping gas for someone and they'd be telling me about something going on in their life and I would just pray for them while that was happening. Or you know, just as things came to mind. And it just, for me became this kind of consciousness underneath everything else that I did. Uh, Brother Lawrence, in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, wrote this. The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling out different things, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were on my knees all alone. And so Paul talks here about devoting yourselves to prayer. It infers a consistency. Uh, sometimes it would be hard work. It, it's a discipline that he talks about. I don't know about you, but I find that I, I tend to cycle in my prayer life. There are times when my prayer life is like breathing. I, it's so easy. It's so natural. There are other times when it's not. And that, there, there are usually things that go along with that. I'm busy. I'm distracted. And at, at those times, he says, be devoted, right? And I would say we should be devoted to prayer because prayer is important. In fact, I would say this, prayer is as important as anything else you're going to do today. And so we devote ourselves to it. We have a nonstop connection. That's the first thing is Paul talks about um, talking with unbelievers. He says, first, let's pray for ourselves and let's stay alert and let's be thankful. That's the second thing. He says, let's be, let's be watchful in prayer. Now, what does that mean to be watchful in prayer? Well, it could mean several things. Jesus told his disciples to keep watch for his, his return. You know, some commentators think that's what he's talking about. Uh, Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation. That's obviously another good thing to pray about. In Philippians 4, Paul you know, tells us to just pray about everything. Don't be anxious about anything. For, so anytime something comes along and it's bugging you, then pray about it. Pay attention to the needs in your life. Pay attention to the people around you. When you're tempted, pray. When you're making decisions, pray. Uh, when you're going through experiences, pray and process those, uh, you know, for discerning conversations and news and, you know, just basically says pray about everything. And all those things are good things to be watchful for. But I think the context is about something else. Because here he's talking about praying about ourselves before we talk to other people about the Lord. And I think the context is more like this. He's saying, be sure to pray and when you pray, be watchful about what you're praying about. What are you watching for? I think he's saying, watch for God. Watch for God. And what you'll discover when you pray is that God works. What you'll discover is that our Heavenly Father loves to answer our prayers in ways that are, are best for us. 
And I think when we watch for God's answers to our prayers, then we are more likely to recognize those answers when they come. I think one of the really tragic things that happens to us in this life is we have just enough faith to pray to God and ask for things, but we don't expect him to answer and we don't look for it. And when the answer comes, we miss it. We miss the blessing that comes along with seeing God work and we miss how it builds our faith and our trust in him. And so what I think he's saying here is as you pray, be watchful. And as you're watchful, you'll see God's providence at work. When I think of God's providence, I think of two words. I think of God's sovereignty and his goodness. That God is sovereign, that God is in charge, that God is working, and that he does all things for our good. And when you put uh, the unlimited power of God together with the goodness of God, you see these wonderful things. This stimulates in us thankfulness. And so I, I kind of see this process, if you will, that praying out of discipline um, and asking God for things and then being watchful for things will create a thankfulness in us as we see God working. And that thankfulness will go on to build our trust in God, which will make us want to pray even more, right? Because if God's answering prayers, then why wouldn't we pray about everything? Or as I thought about it this week, if I don't value prayer, I think it just shows that I haven't been paying attention to a God who answers prayer. And so he says, stay alert and thankful as you pray. And the next thing he says is to ask for open doors in verse three. And he says, and, and pray for us that God may open a door for our message. So this is a really interesting phrase here. We'll break down. So that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison. Now, a lot of times when we uh, run into somebody that maybe we haven't seen for weeks or a month or something, um, a lot of times we'll ask them, you know, how's it going? What, what's going on? Or are you, we'll want to know what's the big stuff that's going on in your life. So a lot of times right now, if I run into people out in the community and they'll look at me and they'll say, you know, what did you do? Uh, what happened there? And I, I wish I could have some really cool story like, yeah, I was driving down the street and uh, this house was on fire and I saw this dog looking out the second floor window and so I, I rushed in to save the dog but the door was locked so I broke it down with my big beefy shoulder but I, I got the dog, I saved the dog but I messed up my shoulder and but that's not what happened. I, I just fell down some stairs, which doesn't sound that exciting. But people always be like, what did you do to your shoulder? And, you know, how's, how's physical therapy going? When we run across people, right, we want to know what's the big stuff that's going on in your life. Paul's writing a letter. This, what we've been studying is a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Colossae. Now, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And they knew he was in prison when he wrote it. That's the big news. That's the, right, that's this thing. When they're like, what's going on with Paul? How's Paul doing? How's prison going with Paul? Is, is he still in prison? They want to know. Now, Paul was in prison because of his politically incorrect proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And this ran in contradiction to Caesar who claimed lordship alone. And that gets Paul in trouble and that, get, that, that lands him in prison. And when the Colossians got this letter from Paul, they expected to hear about his imprisonment. So again, remember, this was a letter that was written to this church. And so one Sunday they get together and the pastor, whoever teaches in the church, gets up and says, hey, I got something different for you today. We got a letter from Paul. So I'm gonna read the letter from Paul. And people are like, oh, this is Paul. He's in prison. We're gonna hear how it's going. So they all sit down and lean forward and he begins to read. And he, he re, they're expecting to hear all about this, his imprisonment. How's it going? Is he, is he eating okay? Is he healthy? And chapter one goes by, nothing about prison. He reads chapter two, nothing about prison. He reads chapter three, nothing about prison. And then he's like, okay, so now we're getting to the end of the letter. This is all the goodbyes. And now Paul brings up for the very first time prison. 
but he brings it up in a way that they probably weren't expecting. Like they, they probably expect as Paul's closing the letter and he finally brings up prayer and he asks, uh, he asks for prayer, they would probably expect that he would say, pray that God gets me out of this place. Right? Wouldn't that be a natural thing to pray for? Pray that God gets me out of prison so I can keep going around and sharing the gospel and planting churches. But instead, what he says is very ambiguous. It's very vague. There's uh, several different ways to take this. What he generally says here is pray that God will open doors for me to pro- proclaim the gospel. That's what he says. It's very vague. Now, a door could be a prison door, certainly. God had done that on several occasions. He did it for Peter. In fact, he'd done it for Paul and Silas and Philippi. But that's not what Paul says. He could have said, pray that God opens his prison door, but he doesn't say that. What he says is pray that God will, will open a door of opportunity so that I can share the gospel with unbelievers. Here's what Paul knows. Paul asked for prayer because Paul knows that his words alone will never bring someone to faith. Never. Sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, don't we? I have to be sure to share the gospel in just this way. And if I do it just right, if I say just the right words, then in a, just if I win the debate, if I win the argument, if I answer all their questions then, you know, maybe they'll become a Christian. You could do the same, I could do the same thing up here. If I could, you know, if I could just preach the perfect sermon and people would just, you know, everyone would come to Christ. And Paul knows that's not how it works. Only God can open a heart. Only God can do that. That's why we pray. We pray for God to open hearts, to be receptive to the gospel. We pray that God would give us opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers. We pray, sometimes, um, this will happen, sometimes somebody will come up to me after a sermon and say, you know, pastor, I saw my neighbor was here today or a friend was here, a coworker, and they don't know the Lord, so I was just praying for them today as you were preaching. And Paul will be like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, let's be praying for people who don't know Christ, that they would be receptive, and let's pray that we would have opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now, it was proclaiming the gospel that put Paul in prison. And so what Paul says is pray for me that I can have more opportunities to get in trouble. Like that's basically what he's saying, right? Not like I learned my lesson or pray that I can get out so I don't have to get, no. Paul's like, just, pray, just give me more of that. Pray that God gives me more of that. Paul isn't praying for a change of circumstance. He's praying for opportunities within whatever circumstance God gives him. So imagine if we started praying that way. If instead of praying so much that God would change our circumstances, imagine that we would start praying, God, whatever my circumstances are, I just pray that you will give me opportunities to share the gospel with people. Like, imagine that. Ask for open doors. Now, Paul says another thing. He says, pray that God will give me clarity when I share the gospel with other people. So here's another great thing for us to pray for ourselves. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul's just saying, listen, when I talk about Jesus with unbelievers, pray that I will be able to say things in a way that makes sense to them. See, now so often when we share the gospel, we share stuff that makes sense to us. But it doesn't always make sense to other people because we're living in an increasingly spiritually illiterate culture, right? Biblically illiterate. People in our culture today who don't know Christ don't understand words like atonement. So while it might feel good for you to talk about atonement or sanctification or justification, right, it might make you feel really theological and it's a great thing to understand, it probably doesn't mean anything to them. And we're just speaking 
to make ourselves feel good about what we said. People in our culture don't understand in so many ways what salvation even means or what faith means. You just talk about faith and like, well, I just, I have faith in faith. I, I have faith in me. I, I believe that if I can, you know, conceive it and my heart can believe it, I can achieve it, garbage kind of. That's what they think of with faith. They don't believe in objective truth anymore. They don't believe in repent. Our culture doesn't believe in repentance anymore. You talk about repentance, they have no idea. Wait, it doesn't, can I just be who I am and can't you just affirm that? Sin means nothing, it, right? Most people don't even believe in the existence of sin anymore. So we're gonna have to work hard at articulating the gospel in meaningful ways for them. The goal isn't for us to feel good when, we're, when we leave because we checked off all the right vocabulary boxes, but that we could say it in a way that means something to them. So Paul says, pray that you'll be able to make it clear. That takes prayer. C.S. Lewis said this, I love this, he said, any fool can write learned language. The vernacular is the real test. If you can't turn your faith into it, then you either don't understand it or you don't believe it. Kent Hughes, a pastor, wrote this in his commentary on Colossians. He said, someone passed the following quotation on to me from a graffiti wall at St. John's University in Minnesota. And this is what it, it said on the wall. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the charisma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> now, don't get me wrong, all right? We need deep thinkers. We need intellectuals who can wrestle with theology and define it and explain theology in technical terminology. We need that. We need to be stretched. We need to be pushed in our understanding of the gospel and of God and of Christ and the atonement. But think about this. I, I was reading this uh, paragraph from Jonathan Edwards recently and it's, it's one of those paragraphs, it's on the Trinity and it's one of those things that people who are willing to theology love to read this and study this and, and pray through it and, and, and chew through it. Let me just read this for you and as I read it, just you know, go ahead and process it as we go along. It's on the Trinity. Jonathan Edwards writes this, this I suppose to be the blessed Trinity that we read of in the Holy Scriptures. The Father is the deity subsisting in the prime, unoriginated and most absolute manner or the deity in its direct existence. The Son is the deity generated by God's understanding or having an idea of himself and subsisting in that idea. The Holy Ghost is the deity subsisting in act or divine essence flowing out and breathe forth in God's infinite love and to delight in himself. And I believe the whole divine essence does truly and distinctly subsist both in the divine idea and the divine love and that each of them are properly distinct persons. Amen? Right, like, and I, this is the kind of stuff that gives you a headache. And I, I have some friends who are like, every year I read that and I think about it and I meditate on it and I get a headache, I take some Advil, and then I, you know, and here's the thing, we need, we need creeds, we need doctrine, we need theology books, we need sermons that make our head hurt and stretch us. But think about this, when we look at Jesus and his life, right, he was both profound speaking words that we study for a lifetime and still we're digging down in, and yet at the same time, he spoke in terms that even unbelievers could understand. As one writer put it, he put the cookies on the lowest shelf where anyone could reach them. So Paul says, pray that I'm like that. Pray that you're like that. Pray that we have theological depth, but that when we speak to unbelievers, we speak in a way that's clear, in a way that makes sense to them, because isn't that the point anyway? And then he says this in our text. Once you talk to God, 
Once you talk to God, once you take this stuff to God, then you have permission to open your mouth and to speak words to other people. First talk to God, and then talk to people about the Lord, about the gospel. So a couple things in our passage that he says are this, as we open our mouth and we talk to other people. The first is this, he says, as you do it, make the most of it. Make the most of your opportunity. Verse five, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, unbelievers. Make the most of every opportunity. I believe that's the ESV, the New American Standard, I think says making the best use of the time or it might be vice versa. But I love both of those together. Make the most of every opportunity or make the best use of your time. Now he says, be wise. So how do we, how do we be wise in this situation? Well, here's what he's saying. You're wise when you make the most of every opportunity, every interaction you have with an unbeliever. And here's why. Because our time is short. Because our days are numbered. Your days are numbered. The people around you who don't know Christ, their days are numbered. You only have a limited amount of opportunities to talk to the Lord about the people around you who don't know him. A limited amount of time. And that's it. That's all you get. A limited amount of time to share the gospel with other people. And we don't know what that number is. We don't know how many more opportunities that we have. I mean, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here, but just logically, it's true, isn't it? That some conversation in the future is going to be your last with someone. Either because you can't share anymore or they can't share anymore. And so Paul says, keep that in mind. Make the best use of your time. Every opportunity is important. God has entrusted you with the gospel. Don't waste your interactions with unbelievers. Ask yourself, if I only get one more conversation with this person, what should absolutely be part of that conversation? So Paul says after you pray about all this, then make the best use. Be wise when it comes to how you spend your time. There's a second thing he says when you open your mouth with unbelievers, and that is do it with grace. Go with grace. Verse six, let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul expects every believer to talk about the gospel. That it would be as natural to us as talking about our kids or our job or, or a hobby. Now when he says here, let your conversations always be full of grace, commentators kind of argue there's two different ways to take this. They could be talking about the grace of God or they could be talking about you talking in a gracious way. I'm gonna take both. I think it's really both of those things. In other words, think about it this way. What he's saying is this. If the, if the gospel is a message of grace, which we would say it is, the gospel is about the grace of God. It's not about works. It's not about being good enough. It's not about earning your way to heaven. It's about grace. It's about what Christ has done for us on the cross, that he's done it all, that the work is finished. It's a gift that God gives to us. My point is this. If the message is one of grace, then the way we communicate it must reflect that. So it makes no sense that we would talk about the grace of God in a harsh way, in an inconsiderate way, in an unloving way that's antithetical to the very idea of the message that we are sharing with other people. The way we talk about the gospel must be filled with grace. In other words, it must be, it must be humble. Right? To, to talk about the gospel with unbelievers and do it in a prideful way almost feels like you don't understand grace. Because you were saved by it. Not because you were better than them. Not because you were smarter than them. Not because you figured out something they couldn't figure out. 
You were saved because of the grace of God. So when we share the gospel with other people, we should do it humbly. That, that is integrity when we talk about the grace of God. Jesus had a way of, of calling people to do hard things like repent of their sin right? and, and to believe in the gospel. But he had a way of doing it that was, that was gracious, wasn't it? And, and, and that invited people in at times. We are not merely to speak the truth which we are to speak, but we are to speak the truth in love. We're to do it in a way that is helpful for the other person. Again, it's not just about me having a bunch of boxes to check off and okay, there, I shared the gospel and it was harsh and mean, but I got all the big words in and yeah, got the judgment in. And it's been said, gracious speech flows from a soul that has received the grace of God. And I like that. So he says, go with grace. And one more thing he says is this, really go heavy on the salt. So I, I wasn't really sure, I wanted to put this, I, I want to say, you know, have salty speech or something like that. This didn't sound quite right. Um, so I'm just going to put, you know, go heavy on the salt here. And, and here's what I mean. He says, let it be seasoned with salt. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. So what does that mean? Well, that's probably a Jewish idiom for keeping things interesting. In our house, uh, my wife and I love to watch uh, shows on cooking, and there's a guy we really like to watch. His name is Roy Choi, if you've ever seen him. He's a famous cook, and he, one of the things Roy Choi always does is everything he cooks, between every layer, he puts salt and olive oil, right? So when my wife's cooking dinner, I always say, did you Roy Choi it, which means there's a lot of salt on there. And uh, that's kind of what he's saying here, except I didn't want to put it that way. I could have said Roy Choi it when you share the gospel with unbelievers. Roy Choi it. In other words, our communication of the gospel ought to be something that's interesting, uh, that's, uh, that's thoughtful, that, that's intriguing, um, that it's not defensive but joyful, that we're not watering down the gospel, but we are explaining it in a way that's meaningful, that's interesting to the other person. Again, you can kind of see where Paul's going here, right? He just keeps saying, pray for yourself, pray for yourself, pray for opportunities, because when you open your mouth, the temptation is always to do what you think is right and make it about you and checking off the boxes and then you'll miss the point. This is about speaking in a way that is meaningful to the person you're talking to. It's about them now. It's not about you. Go heavy on the salt. Talk about things that are interesting to them, about felt needs and fears. He says, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I love that he says that... It, the implication here is you're going to talk about the gospel and people are going to have questions, which is always, ironically, our greatest fear. <laughs> We're like, I'm afraid if I talk about the gospel, they're going to ask me questions at the end, which is what we should hope for. So he says, pray that God will prepare us to, to, to be able to answer those questions. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we listen to sermons. That's why we take notes and meditate on scripture and, and read books about it so that we're prepared. But again, great thing to, to, to pray about. See, again, what he's saying is simply this, that words have power, and your words have power. So before you open your mouth and you talk to people, make sure that first you talk to God. And that includes your face-to-face -face conversations. And I would suggest it might be good advice before you write that text, or before you put that uh, response on social media, or before you send out that email, that you pray first. Now, going back to my interaction with John Hendricks in college, I would say this. He, John did not set out that day to change my life with his words. That wasn't what he was trying to do, but he did. And I think so often in the same way, I've just found in life it's not often the conversations we have with people that we, 
that we hope will change them? I mean, how many times have we been like, I'm gonna get together with somebody and I'm gonna say this and I think it's gonna change your life. And so many times, those aren't the things that change people's lives. It's the things we didn't think about. It's the conversations that we did, you know, that we had. And then a year later, they come back and go, you remember when you said that to me? And you'll be like, no, I don't remember that at all. And then you're like, well, that changed my life. Your words have the ability to do that through the working of the Holy Spirit to impact lives, to change directions, to give hope, to introduce people to Jesus Christ and build them up in the faith. But you start by talking to God first. Be watchful, be thankful, pray for opportunities, for clarity, for for saltiness. I would suggest if you're like me, I don't leave this stuff to chance. So I have lists for everything. I write everything down. I have a list of people in my life who don't know the Lord and I've written down their names so that I don't forget to pray for them. And I'm devoted to it. I pray for them every day and I wanna encourage you to do that as well. You can do it on your phone or your iPad or just write it down on old school, you know, piece of paper. You can get out your chalk and slate and write it down there. But who are the people in your life right now that you come up against? people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You could be praying for them and praying for yourself and praying that God will give you clarity and opportunities. And who knows? Maybe someday that person will be sharing in front of a crowd or, you know, over lunch with some other people and they'll say, yeah, you know, one time I was talking with so-and-so, maybe you, right? And they said this to me and that changed my life. And you might not even remember that, But because you prayed first, God was able to use those words. But it starts with prayer. I came across a poem this week from a guy named David White. And I just wanted to close with this because I just like what this says. He says, this is not the age of information. It is not the age of information. Forget the news and the radio and the blurred screen. This is the time of loaves and fishes. People are hungry. And one good word is bread for a thousand. May those words come from you and from me. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this great reminder that we are surrounded by people who need a good word. People who need to hear the gospel. And people who need to hear it in a way that is clear and that is really leaning on you and not our own ability, but leaning on you. We need to be people who pray for opportunity, who pray for open doors, who pray for for clarity, who pray for saltiness in speech. Father God, I, I pray that for us. And may we be people who are devoted to praying for ourselves and the opportunity to share the gospel. And may we be devoted to praying for those around us who don't know you. Because there are eternities on the line here. So Father, make us wise. Help us to make the best use of our time, to make the most of every opportunity. And I pray that in the future, because of that, because of our devotion to to trusting you through prayer and leaning on you and taking opportunities, that there will be people who will point back to words that we said and who will say, God really used that. God really used that conversation and those words to change my life. Yeah, I pray for that today, that that would be true of us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen.